Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, slimy filmmaker and clad almost entirely in leather. And joining us tonight, he is the director of the Fright Fest Presents title Secret Santa and also Jason Goes to Hell, the <laughs> final Friday. Yay! It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Mr. Adam Marcus to the show. Adam, hello. Hello. Hi guys, how you doing tonight? We are very well, sir. And I, I, I'm a massive honour, I have to say <laughs> and thank you for coming on despite us actually having done jason goes to hell I, I i love that when i asked you guys for a list of the stuff you you had jason goes to hell course right in the middle of the list which uh, which only made me know how legit your program actually was so well done exactly <laughs> <Hooray>! <laughs> So, um, Adam, you've chosen uh, William Friedkin's Cruising as uh, your film, and obviously something that kind of like maybe invites a little bit more of a kind of a certainly a more serious-faced film than a lot of the ones that people tend to choose on this. What was the driver behind you choosing this film? Uh, well, several things. Uh, William Friedkin is probably one of the most influential filmmakers as far as my work is concerned, especially in, in the horror genre. But also, what I love about Cruise, how divisive it is, uh, much like much like my first feature, you get people on both sides of this argument really heated. And I grew up in New York City. Um, I actually was in the city when they made Cruising. Uh, and I remember my dad, when we would pass by, I was a, I was a little kid, but when, when we would pass by... Uh, areas in the, in the um, meatpacking district, which is where they they shot a lot of cruising, and there were these riots going. I mean, it was it was crazy the, the the situation surrounding that movie. My dad would tell me, you know, there's a lot of people really angry about this film, and you know, a ton of uh, when when I, I always joke like, you know, some people were raised by wolves. I was raised by choreographers. I grew up, in, <laughs> I, I grew up in you know Manhattan and, and Westport, Connecticut, and uh, I, I total theater background. Most of my family were on Broadway, and I mean, I was I was that kid, and so we had a ton of uh, of gay friends uh, when I was growing up, and their response to this was so violent, was so angry that this movie right. was getting made. That, of course, I became obsessed as, you know, like an eight-year-old with seeing this movie. Which, of course, talk about an inappropriate movie for any child to ever, <laughs> ever watch. Uh, well, yeah. Adam, I'll tell you, I, just, I did just have my eight-week-old baby on my lap where we watched it, so... <laughs> Oh, that is awesome. That is brilliant. Uh, no, I, I, I just... Like 15 uh, you know, years I, from I, now, I he's going to be describing that to a therapist. Totally, totally is. Um, but it's... Uh, no, we, we were really... Um, I was blessed to be in, in in a world where I could... Where all of this stuff was accessible to me. Yeah. And when I saw the film, it's so funny because people always think of, you know, The Exorcist as Friedkin's horror masterpiece, which I agree with that. But I have to say, I think Cruising is a really close second to that movie. And from a technical aspect, a lot of the stuff that he had just dipped his foot in the water on, on The Exorcist, really comes to its full fruition in Cruising. The the movie is so disturbing 
And there's so many things in that film that I, I think Friedkin's one of those rare guys that actually got inside people's heads as a filmmaker and showed us what it was really like to look through the eyes of these of these individuals. And not just the killer, but Pacino's character, who potentially is also a killer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really, uh, it's a really remarkable film. It's a film I've liked since the first time I saw it, which was a few years ago now. <laughs> and um, still, it strikes me as this weird kind of time capsule of a time when it was mm-hmm. really difficult to and really kind of it was a really kind of insular community like yep. being a gay being a gay man at the time yeah. i think and yeah. uh, it was just before kind of aids reared its ugly yep. head and, and I, I just think it's a really interesting film about an interesting time and based on real crimes i think that that's oh, yeah. important to mention that oh, yeah. as well yeah that's i mean the movie um, itself is, a, is an amalgamation of two different actual uh serial killings that went on uh in really in the late 60s early 70s in manhattan and the the other thing that's so crazy uh and i'm sure you guys have heard this legend but but this is a true thing one of the people that Friedkin interviewed because he was interviewing people who were involved in these crimes who were part of this whole thing that had happened one of the people that he interviewed this is so nuts was a serial killer who is in the movie The Exorcist, who's an actor Exorcist, in The Exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the people that actually supplied him with the historical background to make cruising. So and yeah. he visited wow. him in prison. I mean, it, <laughs> he was an active serial killer when The Exorcist was being made. So in The Exorcist, there's actually a serial killer, active serial killer in the movie. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. That's incredible. It's crazy. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of tidbits like that, Mitch. You're going to learn a lot during this. Yes. I have a feeling I might, yeah. Uh, Adam, don't know if you've heard the show before, but there is something that we make everyone do that comes on, and it's basically for the benefit of anyone who is listening to a show that may not have seen the film. So um, what we tend to do is Andy's going to put 30 seconds on the clock. I'm going to count you in, and we're going to ask you to give us your best 30-second synopsis of cruising. Wow. Okay, all right. Wow, that I was not expecting, but all right, let's do it. Right, let's do this. Three, two, one. Go. Al Pacino is a very straight-laced beat cop in New York City on the rise. There is a series of killings happening within the gay community, most specifically the leather bar community. Uh, He is tasked by the captain of his precinct to go undercover, deep undercover, to infiltrate this scene in order to find the killer. The problem is he goes too deep and starts to question his own sexuality along with becoming... Time! Oh, shoot. Time. Oh, not yes. bad, so not bad. So close. Not bad. The, the, those have a tendency to go absolutely disastrously. So uh, there's... Uh, <laughs> you can come out with that one with your head held high. Um, I think... That, uh, <laughs> I think we should just jump right into this because the film does that. Um, Very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the first thing we have here is this kind of shot of a New York skyline and then we headed straight aboard this boat where this guy on the boat, a crew member on the boat, I guess, spots mm-hmm. this desiccated human arm floating in the sea. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. True story. And then we get a night. Nice, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we get a nice uh, shot in a, in a morgue uh, where... Uh, <laughs> Uh, rather than really try to identify this arm in any way, shape, or form. Uh, in fact, the, the police make it quite clear that they're not going to look for the rest of this body. They might as well just try to cobble some kind of weird human Lego body together from an assortment of bits that they have mm-hmm. on a sliding tray, which I think says a lot about how much they were caring about, well, about murder in the kind of first instance in New York at this time, um, but certainly murders within the gay community. Oh, yeah. Um, and by the way, the the cop in that scene at the morgue, that yeah. guy, that guy is an actual New York police detective. And in fact, 
he uh, he started in the early 70s as a liaison for the New York City Police Department with the New York Film Commission so that he would be okay. there for technical support or to be on set to, uh, you know, for, for purposes of, of having law enforcement on, on a New York City uh, film set. Well, Friedkin loved the guy. They got along so well. He got so much information from him that he then asked that that officer if he would be in the French Connection because <laughs> – yes. Friedkin loved casting real people in these movies, by the way, including the lab tech that was in The Exorcist that was an active serial killer. He was actually a lab tech. He wasn't an actor. So so Friedkin had a penchant for doing this. Well, this guy becomes a, a regular in all New York City cop dramas that are shot for the next decade. He, he becomes like <laughs> a serious actor. And in the meantime, he's got this case going on where him and his partner were embroiled. And this is something that um, the director, the de- director of the documentary that we're raising money for right now, Hearts of Darkness, the making of the final Friday, Edwin Samuelson uh, is working with Skeleton Crew, my company, on a documentary um, about this police right. officer. Whoa. Yes. And that guy was investigating the murder of his own partner and that they had basically been okay. set up. And that guy was then released from police duty because he was becoming too famous as an actor. No joke. Right, I see. So they were trying to silence him and get him out. So when he did cruising, by the way, he was one of the officers involved with the initial investigation of the serial killings in Manhattan against gay men. So that actor who plays one of the biggest parts in the movie... That guy is uh, an actual New York City police detective. So Randy Jorgensen, we take our hats off to you, sir. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? Wow. Yeah, That amazing. is amazing. That is amazing. It's amazing. Straight to uh, two policemen out in a car, one of whom is Joe Spinell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. kind, kind of, uh, they're kind of lamenting how they believe the, kind of, the streets are deteriorating and things. I think that the way that Joe Spinell and his character weaves in and out of this thing is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Joe Spinell's fucking great. He's so like, good. He really is. So good. Uh, and... And everything. I know we, we did the, the ninth configuration before, and he's got a tiny part in that. But, I mean, this was right before he did Maniac. His, and, his moment in the ninth and, configuration where he uh, where he's lamenting that he was not able to get a great Dane to play Hamlet <laughs> is yeah. genius. It's genius. Yeah, Spinell. Spinell's, <laughs> look, I mean, and Spinell's one of those, he's one of those guys because he's such a journeyman. I mean, there's a guy in The Godfather. Yeah, yeah. Like, Spinell, Spinell is really, like, significant New York character actor. And, of course, the thing he everyone will remember him for is Maniac, which, you know, God bless him, he was the lead of the movie. And he also elevates that material because he's so good in that. I mean, that movie is so sleazy and so yeah. gross. And Joe Spinell makes you go like, well, no, it's kind of an important film. It's really not. But Spinell is it. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like uh, Spinell does the same thing here, where he's the kind of character that right away, as soon as you see Joe Spinell, you're like, oh, there's something something about yep. this guy makes me feel a bit sticky and a bit Absolutely. uneasy. <laughs> so and, true. Yeah. And um, yeah, we find out pretty quickly exactly what that is. Yeah. In this oh, yeah. instance. Yeah. Yeah. The gay the 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 gay hustler that he uh, that he pulls into the car, that one of the two, the one who becomes more significant in the story, that yeah. is uh, that is Brad Davis's brother brad davis from midnight express and uh uh, and querelle um yeah so i mean like again such significant like acting chops on the on really tiny roles in the movie and right off the top of the film as well like Mm -hmm. and before you've even you're anywhere i think it's like 18 minutes or something before pacino's even involved in the film yep which is pretty awesome i I do like the the wordplay about the various different kind of ways you could say cocksucker (laughs) 
<laughs> I was trying to write some down myself, but I was failing quite badly. <laughs> and you're really not good at focusing on the job in hand. You're doing, <laughs> are you? No, I wrote clunk sinker. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. Um, we kind of, I, th- I think that the way this kind of burns through the kind of setup is pretty good. We head straight to um a kind of underground fetish club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, from which mm-hmm. two men go home together. The way that this exchange kind of turns sour and obviously ends in one of them's eventual murder is so incredibly uncomfortable yeah i mean this whole yes. thing is pretty mm-hmm. uncomfortable uh this that, you, you get that nice kind of tracking shot through the kind of through the bar uh and you see an assortment of rcs you see one with a love heart on it which might be me because i've got a love heart tattooed on my ass but i'll never tell um, <laughs> and uh all this stuff like i mean freaking's quite honest about the fact that he just filled this film with as much as much extreme stuff as he could in these clubs because these were actual active working clubs he just filled them with as much stuff as he could because he knew the censors would cut it all out and he'd be left with the film that he wanted. What's also amazing is when you consider that this is the guy, you know, who did, you know, the birthday party. So here's mm-hmm. a guy who has been championing um, gay rights issues for forever. And now, you know, and again, it's so interesting because what I love about him so much is that it was always about telling the story he was telling at that moment. So as yeah. ugly as this gets, he he does have all sides of it because, you know, the guy that, Pacino is is slowly falling in love with in the movie is the sweetest most lovely character like he's the ingenue of the movie so (laughs) so he really does play both sides of all of these these issues and stories and also there's like a cavalierness to it that's so that I think actually is what makes it really uncomfortable for most guys especially but um, mm-hmm. even the scene, the scene with Powers Booth, yeah, regarding yeah. The, Which know, is, the, what handkerchief goes in what pocket, no, and just what the the uh, associated colors mean, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, like it's stereo instructions, <laughs> you know, like nothing, yeah. like it's so it's blase blah that you go like, wow, this is really their lives. This isn't some, you know, this isn't this isn't tawdry. It's just it just is what it is. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, really, I think that. I, th- I think I, that's a lot of what bothers people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think that it is presented that way. I think all of the kind of all of that kind of stuff that you see in the film, I think, is presented yep. in this kind of matter of fact way. I don't think it's set out to elicit any kind of reaction from anyone. I think it's just presented right. as the way it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I- including the fact that you know when Freakin was shooting in the bars. He just told them to do what they would normally do. They weren't being directed, so to speak. So there are acts, there are sex acts happening on screen during the movie, out of focus. And if you really... Oh, yeah. Holy God. I mean, it's it's flat out, it's a triple X rated movie. And he got a major studio <laughs> yeah, to put it out. It's amazing. <laughs> one of the censors, apparently, or one of the guys in the, the MPAA or whoever the board was at that time, said there aren't enough X's in the world. Uh, yes. for us to kind of yep. rate this film <laughs> well on on uh, on my first feature which you guys have, have have actually done a program about on on that feature they stopped the movie after the tent sequence they actually stopped the film didn't watch the rest of the movie and they called our office <laughs> they called our offices to basically say yeah we're having trouble giving this an x rating <laughs> like we don't want this movie to be seen by anybody and i was like is, i was like is this happening like is this actually happening right now yeah, so we, act, we we they would not complete our screening. We had to cut that sequence before they'd even looked at the rest of it. Before they'd even watched the rest of it. Oh, yeah. How much did you take out? 
Uh, it's significant. It was about like two and a half minutes of stuff. I mean, it was, it was a lot. Fucking hell. Yeah. Because, well, no, the funny thing is here's, here's what's amazing. And by the way, I think it works for cruising as well. The thing that the MPA does that they don't realize they're doing because they just suck and they're not, <laughs> and they're not filmmakers. They're, they're, they're religious fanatics. They're not filmmakers. Um, and I get sure. it. Yeah. I, I get it. Hollywood regulates self, blah, 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 bullshit. Nobody's regulating Netflix. Nobody's <laughs> regulating HBO. The amount of sex and violence on HBO in any any episode of Game of Thrones dwarfs what any horror movie is doing. It's shocking. It's really yep. shocking. It's, it's a double stand. I mean, movies are now like the whipping boy of the industry. Like anyone making features, you get beat up more than anybody else does. That being said, here's the thing about the MPA. What they do is they cut stuff out and they actually make everything more frightening because you're not seeing what happens. And with a yeah, with a yeah. with a you know with a Friday Thirteenth movie or a movie called Cruising for God's sakes, the audience <laughs> knows what they're walking into. I love this idea that like people don't know. Well, I went to see Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven, and oh my God. There was blood in it. <laughs> uh huh. They, there was a fellow with a machete and he was chopping up teenagers. Uh huh. Like, what did you, 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 I mean, come on, you thought you were seeing a romantic comedy? So that's the shocker of, look, by the, and, and look, what you guys have dealt with as far as the video nasties are concerned, it's the same, it's the same idea. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's this group of religious fanatics who, yeah, um, busy bodies. Yes who are desperate to foist their idea of morality on you. And in doing so, they cut these movies down in in such stupid ways. Because I can tell you, the R-rated cut of Jason Goes to Hell is actually more frightening. It's not as much fun. It's not as good a movie. But it's <laughs> scarier because you're going, oh, God, what happened to that person? You're not, you're not seeing. I mean, we did the effects in that movie in particular to make it so over the top that mm -hmm, you, yeah. were, mm -hmm. you were like, okay, this is like a fucking cartoon. Like, that was the joke. I mean, I literally had a girl's head jump out of her uh, out of her her brain pan. I mean, literally, there's a brain <laughs> that flies out of Vicky's head. It's ridiculous. Um, with, with cruising, what happened when they when they started cutting this stuff down is they took out the nature of the serial killer and his own self-hatred. And that's what's so cool about, about the movie Cruising is that the guys that you would normally think would hate gay men are not the, they're not the people doing it in the movie. And it's also part of the, it's part of the reason why I think the gay community was so angry about the movie. But the movie is almost self-loathing because it's really about a man who's so ashamed of himself because of this very sort of, white Christian thing in American society. He's so ashamed that his murdering of these other men, it is purely coming from his own anger at himself. And when, you know, when, when he's stabbing those guys in the back, God, I mean, it's like the first stab is the worst. Like that's where it's really frightening. You're like, oh my God, this is, you know, but as he continues to do it, you start realizing this has nothing to do with the guy's murdering. Yes, that's happening, but that's not what it's about. So yeah, yeah. a lot of the context is stolen by, you know, these Mrs. Kravitzes next door going, don't show the third stab. <laughs> I remember um, when I was in college, I interviewed uh, Clyde Barker because uh, Hellraiser just happened. And I right. was interviewing Clyde for I was interviewing Clyde for Spin Magazine. And so I had hung out with him for a couple of days. And I remember he was talking to me about his struggle with the MP. MPAA, and he had told me that um, the MPAA had cut uh, a sex scene in Hellraiser, but he, they'd cut it in the, he, he got the call and they said, the first two 
thrusts are fine. The third thrust, yeah. it becomes obscene. <laughs> and Clyde Barker had said, you know, it, he says, now in my personal life, I can't get that out of my head. That that third thrust is when it becomes obscene. And I'm like, yes, how ridiculous. Like, that's that's the ridiculousness and arbitrariness of the rules. And yeah. by the way, it changes yeah. with every film and it changes every single day. So the fact that Friedkin's movie is about, is about homosexuality, forget about it. Like they had their knives out the second the thing came across their table. Absolutely. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I think that in the aftermath, I, I think that this ent the entire way that the first murders relate to you, both in the way that you see it unfold, but then kind of cuts to the detective and um, uh, Captain Edelstein. Yeah. And the way, mm -hmm. like, kind of the nature of the injury is being described in this horrifically matter-of-fact way, I think that um, it's like, like the whole thing as a package is unbelievably harrowing. I think. Oh, it's horrible! And by the way, just uh, another little tidbit: that was the first time that a morgue was ever yes. allowed to be shown. Yes, yeah. yes, that is true. Really? Yeah. 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 No, I really am learning something. We're at, like the twenty-minute mark in this thing, if that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we're about the eighteen-minute mark because Al Pacino's about to come into this. Yeah, That's just right. before that, That's well, right. um, an, an attempt, an attempt made to report uh, Joe Spinell. Yes. Oh yeah, of course. Here, yeah. which yeah. is uh, which is inevitably kind of shouted down. Yeah, yeah, because what we didn't actually mention is that he's um, he's kind of taken blowjobs. Um, oh yeah. So he's not kind of just so he doesn't kind of run people in mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but at, at this point, like you say, Steve Burns, Al Pacino enters the fray. Yes, he does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. And if, and we find out effectively that um, uh, Edelstein, Paul Savino, wants to use Steve kind of as bait to kind of lure huh. out this killer because he he fits the profile physically of the victims that have been killed so far. Correct. Mm -hmm. And how, um, by and the way, how ballsy, how ballsy is it? The poster of this movie is literally just a, a super tight headshot of Al Pacino. And you don't let him come into the movie for almost 20 minutes into the running time. Come on. Come on now. <laughs> yeah. That's just badass. <laughs> yeah, I love at, it. At this time, he'd have been one of the biggest actors in America, coming off the back of like oh, Godfather absolutely. And stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he had just, and he, I mean, he had just done Injustice for All, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and Dog Day Afternoon, and the two Godfathers. I mean, yeah, no, dude, like there was, you just said Pacino. People showed up to the theater until this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I think he grossly kind of misunderstood the kind of film that it was going to be because, by all accounts, he was incredibly uncomfortable yes so i like the fact that um we get kind of immediately we see him kind of back at home with his wife uh nancy yeah, yeah. karen allen she's yeah. just the best i i yeah. love karen allen i've uh, loved karen allen uh, since i was a little boy yeah she's no she and and you know you know the thing about karen allen and i don't know if anybody has ever really matched it what she does so brilliantly especially of course in in raiders but but even this there is a there's a moxie in her there's a toughness there's this idea that you think she could throw a punch, but she's so goddamn adorable. Like, she's just like, she's so the girl next door, yet you feel like she could crush a walnut in her fist. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what makes her, like, extra hot. You're like, wow, she's cute and looks like she could kick your ass. It's, uh, she's amazing. Yep. Oh, she's amazing. She is the best smile in the world. The smile is killer. It's a killer, dude. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> oh, my God. Because her whole face lights up. Oh, my God. Also, she wasn't given the full script for this. She was only given her bits, so she freaking kept her as in the dark as her character is, which I think is brilliant. It is brilliant. 
It is brilliant, and it's it's his genius, man. This is what what the guy is. He's so good at this. We kind of fly straight into the undercover stuff at this point. Uh, he moves in, uh, assumes the name John Forbes, meets Ted Bailey, uh, his next door neighbor. Uh, again, mm-hmm. I, I really like this exchange, and I think that when and obviously they immediately go and start hanging out and stuff like that, and they start talking about the killer and that kind of thing. At this point, like I say, Adam, I'd never seen the film before. I was watching this for the first time. I was one hundred percent in at this point. Yeah, oh, yeah, good. <laughs> Yeah, like, I, like, I was, I, I, I was very much on the train. I like, yep. Well, they meet and they bond over a giant pile of porn, which I think, to be honest, is an incredibly nice housewarming gift. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know what? We it should is, all though? be so lucky. It's so funny. It's a very that whole sequence um, is very New York because that is exactly okay. how you make friends in New York. There's this weird, like, instantaneous bonding that happens in New York because, and it, it's interesting. It, I mean, it's what makes it such a dynamic, wonderful city. I, I don't know as much now, but but when this movie was made, as dangerous as that city was back then, no one stayed in their own lane. Like everybody talked to everybody. Like I know living in California for now half my life, when I'm in a grocery store and someone on the line talks to me, I always turn and go, you're from New York, right? And like, yeah, you're from New York. I'm like, yeah. It's immediate because <laughs> you can't shut any of us up. <laughs> We're like, and we immediately want to know everybody's business, everything that's going on around. Like, we want to talk about all of it, which is kind of extraordinary. Like, that's why it's this weirdly communicative communal city is that just everybody knows everybody's business. And it's, you know, it's 8 million people and you feel like you know everyone. And that's kind of the greatness of that that opening stuff between those two characters. I think that, because the next thing that we see is kind of like a couple of different, um, yeah. a couple of different scenes of uh, Steve kind of, you see him kind of basically kind of try, like tentatively trying out the kind of undercover thing. Mm-hmm. I uh, had it down in my notes that he looks kind of, pretty uneasy in these early scenes but i suppose if you were going deep undercover and you'd never seen anything like this before you never you would you would be well i <laughs> I, would, I would think so i mean he's he's very much out of his depth and mm-hmm. kind of badly stumbling his way through it and i think also kind of reflecting what the audience is going through because no one no one had ever made a movie like this so no one had ever really seen this world that way so i think all of us i mean he's us he's he's our eyes and we yeah, we feel yeah. uncomfortable, so he feels uncomfortable. Yep. I particularly like the scene where he goes and it's a precinct night. Shout out to the giant pair of handcuffs that they managed to find somewhere. <laughs> um, but I like that he's uh, ejected from the club for uh, for not being yep. in the right uh, the right attire. <laughs> yep. <laughs> There's great irony in that, which is terrific. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, that's, that's, that is a great moment, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, he kind of checks back in with Edelstein at this point, says that this name, uh, Tommy Mancusi's name keeps coming up, Tommy the Joker. Tommy the Joker. So, yeah, well, but while he's kind of mm-hmm. banking this information, we have another murder. Uh, I like what happens here when we cut back to Steve and Nancy, where you kind of see like kind of different kinds of intimacy in their relationship, but you see kind of early on already that this is kind of starting to take its toll on him a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's distracted by the fact that he's now... I mean, he's bringing the leather home. (laughs) It's so good. This this slow transformation. And and, And again, much like him in the early scenes, you're watching their relationship through her eyes, and she's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. Yet, there's no real communication about it, which is amazing. Yeah, because in the, cause in the morning it's after... All or, or, yeah. and And, yeah, in the morning after, he's kind of like, um, it's this kind of very kind of, he seems quite kind of emotionally kind of clingy and kind of needy and kind of talking about not wanting to lose her and all this kind of thing. 
And it is strange, like you say, that like uh, you see something that's obviously this total curiosity to her that is not mm-hmm. really addressed the next day. They're both kind of really yep. obtuse after that. Yeah. Um, I think it's around this time that, uh, yeah, it's it's at this point the cop night happens. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, that amazing that amazing kind of bait and switch where you think his cover's blown when actually he's getting reprimanded for not being enough like a police officer. <laughs> right. Right. So so clever. So freaking clever. Yeah. And um, another quick cut back to him and Nancy, um, who they have a very active sex life, but his mind is obviously elsewhere at this point. Yeah. Well, I. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess his kind of this nightlife is kind of seeping into his days, and um, mm-hmm. he is beginning to question his own his own sexuality. And the the leather, like I said a minute ago, is starting to become more than an accessory. It's becoming a kind of lifestyle for him, out with the undercover life. Yeah. And now I think we're coming up Andy- on on the on the cinema murder aren't we you are correct sir yes um, yeah. i think probably yeah. the pick of the bunch in terms of the murders well i mean if the, if you're if you're trying to break the murders down by quality then this is probably the best one isn't it? <laughs> yeah if I'm, but, if I'm ranking them in ascending order of preference this yeah, is that the seems top. particularly ghoulish but <laughs> oof, <laughs> oof. But, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to quickly mention the music in this because I think the, the soundtrack's amazing. Um, and I love it's that incredible, it's incredible, isn't kinda, it? Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, the, the, the punk soundtrack. And I love that the punk soundtrack was Friedkin tossing out the fact that it would normally be disco because he didn't particularly like disco music. Yep. Again, it's just him doing whatever the fuck he, he wants. And that's, mm-hmm. to me, anyway, that's ad- absolutely admirable. But isn't it, you know, here, and, and again, it goes back to Friedkin in that, in that you go, okay, here's a director who, while Stanley Kubrick is always revered for the music in his movies and for every part of his movies, right? Friedkin, mm-hmm. no one talks about that about Friedkin. And when you think that if you listen to the soundtrack of The Shining and then you listen to the soundtrack of The Exorcist, you suddenly realize... Oh shit! Stanley Kubrick stole all the music from the from The Shining. I mean, from The Exorcist to from The Shining, which he did because he was pissed because he was pissed off because he was the initial director of The Exorcist and right, right, Blatty and Blatty fired. So when when you look at Ed Friedkin's you know sort of work top to bottom, think about the the Tangerine Dream score of Sorcerer yeah. or or one of the bravest choices and I think a remarkable choice, the Wang Chung score. Of to live and die in LA. <laughs> yes, yes. Which is a cr- Wang Chung had had one album, one points on the curve. That was it. <laughs> this guy goes, they're the guys to do the soundtrack for this movie. But he's taste his taste like like if 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 Quentin Tarantino puts a song in a movie, everybody loses their mind. Friedkin would craft <laughs> an entire soundtrack. And no one talks about it. I find that so amazing. And again, when you think that Friedkin, you know, directs opera on his time off for movies, you kind of go, well, yeah, he really understands music. He understands the power of emotion that music brings to to, to a piece of work. And Cruising is, is such an angry movie. And the soundtrack being as angry as it is, and also... The, the 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 score that's behind it as is gene like that kind of very sort of lilting almost pretty score especially behind yeah. all the serial killer stuff is so like it it's it, it, it the juxtaposition of that against the punk is even creepier you're like god why is this stuff more upsetting than the punk music <laughs> <It is. laughs> 
Yeah. We quickly get um, Edelstein kind of gets kind of pulled up by his boss. He's pressuring him for a resolution to this thing, which kind of points you towards how they might take some liberties with some of the investigating and like right. some kind of ethical compromises might get made. It's kind of seeded. Mm-hmm. Um, also, at this point, we head back to the club and in what I think is probably not the most covert piece of detective work. Um, but Steve starts asking questions and finds out that this kind of recurring kind of shady character or kind of air quotes bad guy that we've kind of encountered a couple of times mm-hmm. is um a skip lee are you just going to blow past the 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 peep show murder because oh, i think it, it deserves mention mm-hmm. because i think it's it's the first point in the film where you get the really really most clear bit of subliminal gay porn yes oh yes you do <laughs> and uh, the fact that he filled the film with gay porn and it all got chopped except these little snippets i think's pretty bold well, and also the fact that, you know, it's, it's again, lesson learned from The Exorcist, that he takes the idea of these subliminal images and uses it to such great effect in cruising. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also the, the, the other thing about the peep show, and, it, and now it starts to become sort of Friedkin's uh, ideology about the movie. So if you notice, and Mitch, this is your first time seeing the movie, right? That's right, yep. Okay, cool. Did you notice that the killer is a different person in every scene? I didn't notice that it was a. I didn't think it was consistently the same person, but I didn't think that I necessarily registered that it was a different person every single time. It's a I different. Per- not end. only is it a different person mm. in every scene, but the victims of each one of the murders become the killer in different scenes. What? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first and uh, and the hotel killing at the start. Yep. The killer is the guy that gets killed in the park. Yes, it I is. Believe. Yes, it is. Yeah. What? And, and not only that, but the voice of the killer when he murders, when he is actually killing, the voice of the killer is the voice of the actual killer's father. No. That voice. I didn't, I didn't notice that. It's the dad. It's the dad from the park. So, I mean, I did not stand a chance of noticing that. If you throw an unexpected mustache on somebody that I normally like, I won't spot them. So I did not stand a chance. It's cr- but but again that's like that's the genius of this movie. It's like there there are things that he's doing that no one has the balls to do. That is a cr- like I'm going to use a different killer for every scene, but it's the same guy. What? That's fucking outrageous. It's insane. <laughs> and by the way, none of them are going to have their voice. I'm going to use the voice of the dad that this guy is trying to appease, so that the yeah, avenging the angel is his is his father in his head. This this poor schizophrenic dude. That's fucking bonkers. <laughs> I love this movie. I, I may never recover from this conversation. So you're, you're honestly like your your mouth is hanging loose and I'm, and I'm quite worrying you. Yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. That's excellent. Oh, good. My um, my work here. Then my work here is done. Yeah, and scene. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but like I say, we have um, we kind of get caught up on the fact mm-hmm. that yeah, we've kind of it's kind of it's been planted in our minds. There's this guy who's cropped up a couple of times, looked a little bit shady. We learn that he, that is Skip Lee. Then I something that definitely we can't uh, we can't blow by is um, Al Pacino's dancing in the club scene, which <laughs> this would 100 percent be a meme if this came out in 2019. It's so it's this so bad. It's awesome. I think it's actually a precursor because it's like this angry jolting kind of thing. I think it's the precursor mm. for all of the choreography in Showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the choreographer was Crispin Glover from Friday the 13th Part 4. <laughs> I was just about to make that joke. I was literally <laughs> just about to say that. 
<laughs> Thank you for bringing it back to Friday the 13th. Well done. Well done. Always. I always will. Well done. Very good. It's that, it's that, yeah, you're never any more than two moves away from Friday the 13th. But I, I, I want to say, as a, as a man who in my youth did a fair amount of paupers, um, this is kind of <laughs> this is kind of accurate. <laughs> no, Pacino. Um, I, I I know there was a lot of talk about that with Pacino on set actually, because there was a whole thing about he was actually he had even studied those dance moves. Like there was a whole thing about him going to clubs and trying to get that right. So I kind of find that amazing too. Like he like that's so awful looking, yet. <laughs> I actually think it's based on something that he did tremendous research on. As good as it is, astonishing that that is the product of research. Isn't that amazing? By the way, that scene, that scene would work amazingly. We come on, I lean over it. It really would. <laughs> <laughs> um, we find out at this point, after I have a little bit of recons done, that Skip Lee works in a restaurant called the Iron Horse. The... Um, Police that are scoping this out are amazing, I think, because they go in and ask for a table a table for two, are seated, then both sit on the same side of it and just sit and look at him the entire time that they're there. You mean Ed O'Neill from Married with Children? Yes. Yeah. And largely modern family. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I, some, some, some less than subtle reconnaissance done here. Can I just talk about steak knives? Um, if you'd like. The steak knives in this film are extremely large, and I, I've never understood why any restaurant would put a steak knife in a in my hand or anyone else's hand i mean i'm particularly accident prone and those are huge <laughs> and i and i gotta tell you something that is a true new york palms restaurant steak knife i've eaten with those steak knives <laughs> and they are ridiculous you feel like rambo eating a meal <laughs> just silly they are silly knives you gotta catch it and kill it yourself seriously like you're waiting for the for the you know for the stampede to go through the restaurant. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that like, it's fair to say that I think that kind of drama and story wise, things kind of shift gear pretty dramatically around this time because yeah. we've got um we've got Steve. Sorry, is uh kind of is with Skip wearing a wire. The cops storm the place, and Skip and Steve are ostensibly arrested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This scene's fucking. This scene's ha- pretty harrowing as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and and also quite funny for many reasons oh, but one in particular one that's just yeah. beautiful. it's just beautiful. i mean i mean i mean there is a lot to unpack here oh. Oh, like i feel like we i feel like we could do an episode on just this scene uh, do you want to take do you want to take this much you know i'm, I'm gonna take a, i'm gonna take a back seat here and leave it to you guys to talk oh, through this so one. good um yeah it's a police interview situation the interview is heating up uh, there's a lot of discussion about steak knives, and uh, the door busts open, and an extremely oh. large black man enters. He is wearing a cowboy hat mm-hmm. and a jock strap. Correct. And that is all. Yep. Yep. I believe. Yep. That's it. Yes. Those are the really the only things he's wearing that you can talk about, <laughs> except it's for amazing. scowl. Um, and he smacks oh. Steve extremely hard. Now this is an incredible moment. Can I ask? For theories on why this happens, I know why it happens. Okay. Yeah, apparently, the reason they put this scene in because it's extremely, it's extremely weird when it happens. You're like, "What the fuck was that?" Yeah, I felt like I had been slapped by him when it happened. <laughs> if you'd been slapped by him, you'd know because he's very big. But apparently, uh, they brought this guy in to slap them because if you then told a judge or another police officer elsewhere that you were assaulted by a large naked black man in a cowboy hat that they would doubt the veracity of your claim. Yep. Right, so it, it, so it, it sounds so preposterous, it couldn't possibly be true. 
Exactly. Yep. Wow. Exactly. Okay. Makes you sound like you're like you're longer you're nuts. <laughs> yep. Yep. And what's incredible is that whole thing happened because of Randy Jurgensen. Right. Because so was he had a, seen that happen. Was that a true that story? Was, that was a true story. True story. Hundred percent. Back in the seventies, the New York City Police Department. Oh come on, guys. I mean, you, uh, <laughs> the the corruption was so extraordinary, and the the amount. I mean, look, the fact that Sidney Lumet could literally do a trilogy of New York dirty cop movies. From the 70s to the <laughs> yeah. early 80s. I mean, it says everything about that. The Prince of the City. You just need to watch Prince of the City and you go, oh, that's it. And that's literally what happened in New York during that time period. So, you know, a a naked uh, black cowboy hat wearing guy who comes in and smacks the shit out of you. Yep. That's not even that's not even <laughs> odd in New York at that time. It's like that's just business. It, it's it's nuts, man. It's nuts. So every second guy in the forest was a naked guy in a cowboy hat. Oh, Big <laughs> Joe! Much. Pretty much. <laughs> hey, Big Joe. <laughs> uh, but then it gets really uh, dark, like yeah. when, when they're talking about the when when they're talking about what they're going to make Skip jerk off into a cup so that they can uh, get a semen sample, uh, and then they threaten him with the floating ball test, which mm-hmm. sounds it sounds extremely threatening. Yeah. If your balls float. After whacking off, mm-hmm. then you're not a witch, but you are <laughs> burned at the stake. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what the end game is. If your balls float, they're too empty, so you've been up to stuff. Yeah, I don't know. or you're a liar. Yeah, but again, I, I think it's all stuff just to terrify this guy into Absolutely. a confession, and it works. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and obviously, like, kind of, uh, it's uh, made infinitely worse by the fact that he's not the guy. Oh. Completely also, not the guy. Also, you uh, kind of we we kind of after 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 it becomes apparent that he's not the guy that we're after, we kind of check back in with Steve and Nancy a little bit and kind of just it's just kind of mapping their deterioration. Nancy kind of feels like uh, Steve doesn't find her attractive anymore, all this kind of thing. Um, it's just it's it's kind of just enough, I think, to just kind of look back in and just kind of remind you. Well, I mean, of the look, toll that this is taking when they're on them. when they're having sex and he's thinking of the music from the club in order to get off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's you know. Also, you're not going to forget the big guy, the cowboy hat, that easily. <laughs> I hey, by the way, I, 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 ask yourself in ten years from now, you still be be thinking about it. It's it's you can't you can't <laughs> get it out of your brain. I'm haunted this is by pop those up in the most inopportune moments. <laughs> Since I, I was 12 years old, I, I, I thought of nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Some people check hey, under their beds for the boogeyman. You know what's incredible? I think I might have just. I think I might have just figured out where Creighton Duke came from. Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> I that would love it moment. if that was I'm, I'm the actually actual... having a moment, guys. I really am. That's, huh. <laughs> huh. I'm, I'm so glad that we're recording this for posterity when this happened, this realization hit you. Get that in the documentary. I'm, th- Cracking, I'm right? telling you, I'm thinking about it right now. I'm like, wait a second. Hang on. <laughs> what, I always, what I always thought was influenced by Blazing Saddles, I am now realizing is actually influenced by cruising. That's extraordinary. It's huge, huge. It really is. Massive realization. Yep. The ethics or lack thereof of this investigation kind of start to register with Steve. I really like this scene mm-hmm. when yeah. he talks to Edelstein about kind of abandoning the job. It's all getting kind of too much from Edelstein. I had in my notes that he stops him, but he basically forbids him to kind of walk away from it at this point. Pretty yep. much. He guilt trips yep. him into staying. Yeah. And kind of straight at the back of this, he's on to a new lead, a Stuart Richards this time, yeah. um, a classmate of one of the victims. And uh, so begins a particularly unsubtle stakeout over the next little while. 
I just like I like the section where Pacino just breaks and enters, just total breaking and entering. Whatever. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, when he when he uh, when he unscrews the big fan off the window and it just clatters oh, yeah. to the ground. <laughs> Every New Yorker who saw Pacino do that got very nervous when that happened. I remember my dad talking about it and being like, "You can't tell people how to do that." <laughs> I'm like, Dad, it's not really it's not really a kept secret, man. But the fact that everybody had those window fans in New York, and I mean, as a kid, our place was ripped off three times. So that shit Just happened all the through time. Through the same, oh yeah, through the same technique. Oh yeah, oh my god, yeah, that was a thing. Is this like when the uh, Beastie Boys stole the things off uh, Volkswagens when it sparked a real life crime wave? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The amount of times I tried to break in at my own house when I was drunk with a credit card because I've seen it in films. Sure. <laughs> and sure. then I realized it's sure. impossible. No, it does not work at all. It's nonsense. It's a total nonsense thing. It can work on a bathroom um, lock. That's about it. <laughs> Don't ask how I know that. Oh, never. Uh, so, yeah, Steve, Steve breaks in, snoops around, finds a bunch of undelivered letters to his dad, uh, undelivered for reasons that will become apparent later. Also, as part of this kind of investigation montage, follows him on a bus very conspicuously. Sits about five feet to, feet away from him, uh, not breaking eye contact. Uh, sits, <laughs> outside, uh, sits outside his window very conspicuously as well. But of course, he's kind of trying to draw him out a little bit yeah. at this point. So it's kind of understandable that he's not playing this the most sully. But also, Absolutely, he's kind of cruising him. He, right, he's cruising him. Yes, he totally is. Hence the title. Um, the, the other thing is it's, there isn't like, there's this incredibly weird shift now of protagonist. Friedkin starts treating the killer like the protagonist of the movie. He's suddenly not really the villain anymore for, for a short period of time. It becomes this kind of amazing expose of this guy's brain. It's actually one of my favorite sections of the movie. And it's when that really pretty music starts playing in the movie that is so creepy and gets under your skin. And it's so different than the rest of the film. It's actually quite jarring in a a good way because, like, all of a sudden, you're like finding out this guy's life. You're finding out what he's doing at university. You're finding out the the kind of foibles and troubles that he's got being a young gay guy and and everything that that kind of entails at this time. It is a kind of weather shift. I totally agree. I I think I I had it in my notes as well. I think this this section of the film is absolutely remarkable just because one of how out of the blue it is, how much of a left field choice it is, but also just how much you learn about him in such a short window of time. Yeah. No, it it shows what an economical storyteller Friedkin is. Um, because you do feel like you know that guy. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think yeah. By the, by the time kind of uh, they have the kind of confrontation with each other later, I feel like you know him as well as you do the characters that the film spent the previous hour and a quarter establishing. Yep. Mm-hmm. You maybe even know him better than you know Steve because you know yes. very little about Steve beyond the fact yep. that he's in this relationship with Nancy. Yep. The the other thing that's that's wild about this, and it's it's like again in the area of sort of context behind the scenes to affect what happens on screen the guy who plays the killer the actual killer of the movie the mm-hmm. the guy playing his father in that scene on the bench the guy playing his father was that the younger actor's acting teacher at college in real life right and he they did not get along he hated the guy wow wow and now this is the guy hired to play his father in the movie that's pretty isn't cool. that crazy that's pretty sweet it's such, that's yeah. very cool I'm like what a, what a bizarre kind of amazing and he and the actor who played the killer was like i could really access my feelings about my acting teacher because i'm sitting across from him which then mirrored what i was feeling for my father in this scene yeah so good that's that's amazing so cool that's so cool (laughs) um 
Interesting character introduction at this point, actually, because um, <laughs> uh, Steve meets Gregory, who is um, Ted's boyfriend. Yeah. I haven't heard from Ted in a while, but yeah. We haven't. Um, really. who, yeah, so Gregory's returned. He's been out of town for a while, so we meet Gregory at this point, and there's an altercation. Well, yeah, this is an extremely young James, James Lamar. Lamar. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think there's something undeniably silly about a man trying to fight in his pants. Yes. But that's what we get here. And we get a rare moment of uh, Pacino kicking off. Because uh, he's quite subdued throughout this film, but he really lets the, the beast loose, if you like. Yeah, it it's one point. of the more yep. singular rage moments in there, I think. You also kind of have to love that there's this there's this ter- uh, there's this great thing that happens in that scene where James Ramar, even though <laughs> even though he is clearly unprepared for a fight in this moment, um, <laughs> James Ramar still kind of kicks Pacino's ass. Yep. And and by the way, that's also that's one of the, right exactly. But here's what's great about that. The number of guys I've known over my lifetime who, you know, pricks who like who have something negative to say about gay men and about how they could kick their ass yeah. and this kind of and I always look at that guy and I go, listen, do you know how wrong you are? I said, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, gay guys spend a lot of time in the gym, dude, way more than you, because the gym for them is a different experience. And there's a different there's a different sort of adherence to that lifestyle that you don't get. And I'm telling you, that guy's going to kick your ass. That's how this is going to go yeah. down. <laughs> I remember so, every single scene that you see of Stuart. He's uh, like he's like pumping iron and he's out yeah. jogging. Like he, he takes care of himself. It's uh, no, it, it, and and Gamar at that time, when you think about him, you know, that to the Warriors back to back. Like, first off, yeah. he's having an amazing moment in his career. But also, like, nobody does that, like, pouty-lipped, whiny thing like him. He's so good at that sort of meh kind of, it's like an overgrown baby. It's awesome. He's so good and so specific. But it's also why he works. He's talking, I mean, what's what's wonderful about, about Cruising is the number of character actors who just went on to have amazing careers off this movie, including people like, guys like uh, Paul Servino who's so good in this film. And it's simply because yeah, they're so I, specific. I, yeah, uh, Don Scardino as well. Oh, yeah. He's Ted. I oh, mean, yeah. he went on, he directed loads of episodes of, like, 30 Rock. And, I mean, he, he's had an amazing career behind the camera, but Absolutely. still huge. Yep. No, Friedkin, Friedkin knows talent every time. He, he, his, his eye for talent is extraordinary. Uh, Stu and Steve have their kind of confrontation at this point, um, or kind of vaguely around this point in the park. Yeah. This is unbearably tense, I think. I think it's fucking amazing. Oh, yeah. In this kind of standoff of what obviously kind of turns violent, Steve Ooh. stabs Stu. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, they have this real exchange. It's like it's like a fight, it's, but they're, they're not making contact. It's yeah. like a, the, the classic big dick contest, but in this case, it's almost exactly that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's... It's a really tense scene, and it's really good. It's really strong. That plays out really good, I think. Really good. But we jumps pretty much straight to uh, Stu kind of coming to in the hospital. He is immediately, he's surrounded by kind of detectives and police officers who say there was a fingerprint match from an earlier murder, basically saying that he's basically going to go down for these. Yeah. He denies it. While this is going on, two cops clear Stuart's room. Mm-hmm. Uh, from before and we find out then that the uh, letters that are undelivered to his dad are so undelivered because his dad is dead yep. and he sees them anyway yeah so you're going back to the bit in the, ho- in the hospital room where they're like look if you take the rap for these eight murders that we've got unsolved young gay guys then we'll give you eight years in jail and we'll call it quits at that apparently yep. that's what this real serial killer guy got offered mm-hmm that was the deal he got. It was like, okay. we've got all these dead bodies. If you claim them, yep. then 
we'll knock time off your sentence. Once again, showing you the professionalism of the New York City Police Department at that period of time. God yes. bless them. I mean, that's it was all just about checking boxes. It had nothing to do with actually solving actual crimes. And uh, yeah, it had no kid. And by the way, the fact that the movie is an amalgamation of two separate serial killers already that they know were two separate separate serial killers only underlines exactly what they're saying. I mean, Friedkin's, Friedkin's more indicting the, the system than anything else in this movie. That's really what he's after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Almost bookending the 70s when you go from French Connection to this. I guess so, yeah. And because, yeah, I mean, uh, at this point, we know that regardless of how this plays out and how this exchange with Stu plays out, we find out very quickly that this isn't resolved and there is more to it than meets the eye because Ted turns up dead whilst using yep. custody. Um, yep. Which which I, I thought was great in terms of kind of just blowing the whole thing wide open again. Yeah, there's also the uh -huh. really cool moment with Paul Sorvino and uh, Joe Spinell. He kind of, he sees his badge and he, he kind of takes a mental note of it, although he doesn't really do anything about it, but he's like, he's like just really aware now of all these weird occurrences and all these kind of people coming back around that he's heard about who are part of this scene. Yep. Maybe weren't overtly part of the scene uh, everyone's a suspect Mitch yeah I really like the fact that um, this film comes because we're getting to the point where we kind of have to talk about the ending mm -hmm. yeah Edelstein turns up to the Ted's murder scene he's kind of reminded of the fact that um, Al Pacino's character Steve under the name John Forbes lived next door to Ted mm -hmm. Um, and like you say, like all these people who have kind of been tangentially and kind of indirectly, if not part of the scene, then kind of adjacent to it, are all kind of dropped back in. And the film doesn't give you the satisfaction of seeing the killer being taken away in chains kind of thing. And I think that it's definitely stronger for that. But also because I literally, we watched the end of this and then two minutes later we were hitting record on this podcast. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know of a theory of what, I don't know if I have a fully formed interpretation of how sure. I think this plays out just sure. yet. You know, the, the, I think there's this um, uh, look, I, I think Servino, because we enter the movie ostensibly through Servino, because he he's sort of the, the lead character with as an introduction into the movie. I think his soul, his being so beaten up right from the beginning of the movie, you feel like he's a guy who's just been beaten. And by the end of the movie, you just feel like he wants to lay down in a box and be buried. He, there's yeah. as, as like there's a hopelessness to that last scene and when he realizes that Pacino probably killed this poor kid uh -huh. and Pacino begged, begged to be taken off of this. He begged to leave this and Servino wouldn't listen. And the result uh -huh. of this is this young, this poor young man torn to pieces. It, 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 there, there's like a, there's like this guilty conscience heaviness and this weight to the movie. It's it, again, and this is a major studio release, guys. Like, this isn't some little art house movie. This is an Al Pacino yeah. at the height of his powers movie. I kind of feel like I need to be keep reminded. I need to keep being reminded of that because yeah. it really is insane. It's insane. Think about Disney putting out that movie today. Like, <laughs> sure. that's what's extraordinary. Like, and 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 again, I feel like we're. I feel like modern cinema. We're we're so we're so getting pummeled. And 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 by the way, not not in a terrible way. Here's the thing. I'm not with Martin Scorsese on the decline of movies because of Marvel. That's bullshit. It's just bullshit. Back when, okay. back, you know, back in the 70s, Disney was making puff pieces and fun stuff. And, you know, there's always been popcorn movies. For God's sake, Star Wars happens in 77. Jaws happens in 75. I mean, we, 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 yeah. we have a love of spectacle and fun. And as we should, movies are not, you yeah. know, if movies only educate us, then find me another business to work in. But while our first 
our first contract with the audience is entertainment. A close second should be some kind of understanding of the human condition and some sort of trying to tell a story that, that illuminates our world to some degree. The shame is that, okay, I, I always love people like, well, the Oscar bait pictures take care of that in the fall. No, they don't. No, they don't. It's just a <laughs> chance for, Jane, for Dame Judi Dench or Helen Mirren to win an Academy Award. That's all those movies are about <laughs> now. They're not about telling a story that's challenging or that it's all bullshit. It's just not true. And so for me, I go like, where are all of the cruisings? Where are the Friedkin movies? By the way, look at any Friedkin movie. You'd have a tough time finding a fluff piece in among any of it, even the stuff that doesn't work. It, he's really got something to say. And I feel like more and more, we just have nobody who, who's allowed to say anything because the, yeah. the studios won't put it out. And the agents who hold the leashes on so much of the talents. Um, and when I say leash, I mean a chokehold. Like they're not, they're, they will not allow their talent to do stuff that is as challenging as it should be. And I know television is definitely getting more of that material. I know that that's more of what's happening. But is it really? Yeah. Like, when was the last time you saw something as challenging as cruising on television? Oh, God. Right. I mean, it's just it's so unlikely now as well. I mean, because yep. things have things have changed so dramatically, and there is, I wouldn't say there's acceptance and, and fool, but right. it's certainly a, a bit better. Um, I just don't. Yes. I just don't imagine how you would ever get anything comparable to cruising these days. Right. And by the way, what a shame because here's the thing: while we have done such good work in, especially for gay, lesbian, transgender rights and for acceptance, sure. which is God bless, thank God. But look, you know, mm -hmm. here in America, <laughs> you know, it, it's sort of like when they declared racism dead because Obama had been elected. Um, nope. Sure. Nope. And the problem is, no. because we now have people policing all of our thoughts, as well as this horrible rise in racism and, and anti-gay sentiments going on, because all of that is happening, now is a moment when we need movies like this. Like, it's like, 100%. guys, absolutely. Like, let's not fall asleep at the wheel. This shit's still happening. Yeah, I mean, it's just, a, it was a kind of... The, the, the race stuff in America was just briefly dormant because right. there was a black guy at the top of it. Right. It just it just went um, to the internet, which is now the yeah. you know, which is now the new Klan rally. Rather than rather yeah. than us seeing it, you know, look, I've always said, you know, I I, I always hate when, when any of my you know, because look, I'm 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 just super bleeding heart liberal, that's me. <laughs> but but I am someone who challenges my liberal friends all the time as being not not liberal, but 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 being um, censoring. And I go, listen, yeah. I don't want to stop anyone from marching. I don't want to stop anyone from protesting. I want all of them to do it, because here's the thing. If I can see them doing it, I know who they are and where they are. The minute you shove yep. them yeah. underground then you don't know where they are and they can come at you from any direction. Yeah, then it's your it's uh, faceless school yes. teachers and it's faceless faceless guy you sit next to at work. It's the, the woman yep. that makes your coffee. And, yep. and it's only when you see them march and you go, that's that fucking woman that's that makes right. my coffee. That's right. And that allows you to, to, when you walk in to get your coffee, go, yeah, I'm not getting my coffee here. I, I don't know what she's going to put in it. Thanks, bye. You just fucking, <laughs> you just fucking throw it in her face. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's, but it's true. And and what's genius about cruising is I can totally understand, especially people in the gay community being offended by it because it does have oh, yeah. certain stereotypes and certain things. In, but by the way, 
you can't argue that 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 stuff isn't real too it is that being said it's a splinter group of the gay community and you know ted in the movie is much more what the gay community actually is it's just really nice dudes and really nice women and really nice people yeah. that are just living their Absolutely. lives the same way that anybody else is living their lives so it's like but sure. but i think that movies like it actually help I don't think it hurts relationships with the gay community. I think that's nonsense. It's sort of like people saying, you know, horror movies teach people how to kill. Really? So there was no killing uh, more than 130 years ago. There was no killing before then. It only happened when movies started. That's that's when that whole, oh, the whole killing thing started then. It, it's the same idea. It's like, no, these are stories that illuminate ideas. And I per, look, personally, for me, the best thing out of the whole movie and the reason that movie stays with me to this day is those last two shots. Is, Unbelievable. You know, yeah. is yeah. Karen Allen is Karen Allen putting on, on his clothes, his leather gear, and becoming this sort of kind of oddly masculine figure. And then him staring at himself in the mirror and then looking directly at you through the camera lens. Yeah, as yeah he's, he's asking, uh, mm -hmm. he, he's kind of questioning who he is. Yep. And then at the same time, he is asking the audience, do you know who I am? And kind of on the opposite side of that, do you know who you are? Right, right. And that's the genius of it. It's like three kids so in your face with it that he's literally making <laughs> his, uh, his fluid, his gender fluid lead look you dead in the eye and those are al pacino's eyes kind of screaming at you and that's yeah. that is ballsy come on more more of that please just so much more of that please <laughs> <laughs> i can't say i disagree with that much so adam like i say when you chose this i said it's like it's kind of um it's a a more serious film than a lot of the films that we talk sure. about on the show. Sure. And I was, had fun. And we have, and, we, and this has been a really fun conversation. I don't mind telling you that I think that this is one of the best films that we've talked about. Oh, good. Um, oh, that's good. Oh, I mean, I, 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 I thought this was absolutely amazing. I, I absolutely oh, loved awesome. it. I would say um, we did touch briefly on the fact that um, way back in the fairly early days of um, the show, we had Heather Buckley on and she chose an eighth configuration. That was a yeah. first watch for me as well. And yeah. um, I got an incredible amount out of that, and I got a similar amount out of this. Oh, um, good. Oh, good. I, yeah, I, know, I thought it was like a really rewarding watch, but also just really kind of enlightening conversation as well. Yeah, just to, to kind of get more of an understanding of a lot of things kind of in the background and how it felt together and that kind of thing. Uh, I love this. I am very happy that uh, you brought it. Oh, uh, good. I thought it was great. Yeah. I, will, I will be forcing it on people in the very near future. <laughs> Andy. By the way, yes. by the way, you and I have spoken about it a little bit online, but Ninth Configuration is a favorite of mine. That's an an extraordinary movie that I don't understand how it hasn't found a, as big a cult audience as it deserves. So I'm I couldn't agree more. I'm totally with you on that. But look, here's the thing: what what's amazing when you look at this movie on Rotten Tomatoes, this is this is rotten. This movie's rotten. Yeah, 51 percent. Yeah, and the, and the, and then the cinema score is at like forty five, and you go like, who's watching this movie? Like, <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 truly, I'm baffled by people who hate this film. Baffled. Andy, this is not a first watch for you. You've seen it a few times. Definitely, definitely not. Um, no, 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 not at all. Anything no. to add as we kind of round this off? What I want to say, I guess, in, a, in relation to the show in general, the podcast in general, is, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that this film and other films that we've done, like, fucking Ice Cream Man or something like that, are in any way compa comparable. I mean, no. this Ice Cream Man's <laughs> essentially a piece of shit. Right, but it's it's fun. Uh, 
But this film... Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, Mitch. <laughs> but, but this film's like legitimately an excellent film. Absolutely. What I would say is I still think it's sorely, sorely underseen and undervalued. Yeah. I mean, it's only now with Arrow Video putting out that frankly yep. fucking excellent Blu-ray recently that it's maybe starting to find an audience but I still don't feel enough people are singing about cruising because I, I, I love William Friedkin's films I really do mm-hmm. I think The Exorcist is one of my favourite films of all time just about everything all the way up through weird shit like fucking The Guardian Killer Joe and up, oh yeah yeah all the way up to like Killer Joe less so Bug I know you were saying Mitch that's the only William Friedkin film that you own uh, <laughs> which is fucking wow. weird wow <laughs> yes, that is a weird choice <laughs> just that Wow. I want to say, I want to say that it was a speculative purchase and I did not care for it. <laughs> but like, I, I really love, I, I think he's, I think he's I fucking amazing. By the way, I don't think, I don't think Tracy Letts owns a copy of that movie, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, the author um, of it say, was like, no, I'm going to pass. <laughs> you know what? No, not for me. I would say you must go and check out Cruising because yeah. it's a yeah. really, really remarkable. 100%. Um, a really strong scary like interesting fucking film absolutely and uh mm-hmm. deserves your time more than a lot uh, more than a lot of films that we've done on this show uh yeah I would except say. for jason goes to hell because it's awesome it's damn tremendous skippy. Yeah, yeah, damn yeah. Skippy. <laughs> <laughs> um adam before we wrap this up um a couple of things yeah uh, kind of of your own and kind of things tangential to your work that i want to touch on yeah one thing first off kind of timely christmas is just around the corner and it's just landed on amazon prime in the uk um secret santa yeah is um has just landed i um so i saw this at fright fest glasgow a couple of years back (laughs) the year of all the snow when people couldn't make it for the screening (laughs) and things yeah i was i was stuck in london i couldn't get there i remember it well i saw the video yeah i remember it (laughs) well yeah yeah you don't forget a thing like that. Nothing compares um, lo- to you. Nothing compares <laughs> to you. Remarkable. Um, I um, I love Secret Santa. I have been I've been excited uh, for it to be more readily accessible for some of my friends that I know will dig it. Do you want to just talk about it briefly? Sure, sure. Uh, am I on the clock again? Because that would be terrifying. No, um, no, 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 no. Not that brief. No. <laughs> no. Here, here's the thing. Secret Santa is the first movie out of my my company, uh, Skeleton Crew, that I formed with my beautiful wife and writing partner, Deborah Sullivan, and my amazing, equally beautiful partner, Brian Sexton, who is my producing partner. And we created the company much for the reasons that we were talking about earlier, in that while we want to, we definitely want to tell, you know, uh, we're going to tell a lot of horror stories. We're also going to tell a lot of other kinds of stories. And one of the things about our horror stuff is that we want it to have something on its mind, that it, it can't just be fun. It's got to have, it, that we have to be illuminating something. And for me, I, I kind of looked at the landscape and was like, where did all the Roger Cormans go? Where, where, did, the, where did this idea of filmmaking for uh, you know, for a, a lower budget, um, where did that disappear to? Where people can really tell their stories, where you can find new voices, and by the way, even some older voices that have never gotten a chance to get behind the camera. Like uh, I've got this guy John Esposito, who's one of my best friends the last twenty five years. John wrote Stephen King's Graveyard Shift. He's won the Writers Guild mm-hmm. Award two years in a row for The Walking Dead. He is um, he was the producer of From Dusk Till Dawn for Quentin and, and Rodriguez. Um, so he's wow. a brilliant filmmaker who should be directing. He's only been seen as a writer and he can't make that move. So I was like, where are the producers who will support these voices that aren't getting heard? Mm-hmm. Cut to 
uh, and again, the, the company has a high budget division. We're doing a big movie with Lionsgate right now, and then a television division, and then our, our low budget division. The low budget division is the division that I'm the most excited about. And so <laughs> before I would ask anybody to go do what I did, or what, what I was asking anybody to do, I had to do it first. So sure. right. this is why Secret Santa happened. Secret okay. Santa is, um, it, it came about because my partner called me on <laughs> on Halloween day, uh, 2015, and said, we need to get a really tiny horror film out now, like right now. What scripts do you have? And I'm like, for no money? I, uh, not much. Uh, give me a minute. I got to think of something. So truly within 24 hours, I'd come up with a story. I'd found a location. I picked my <laughs> cast and then wrote the thing at that point. We wrote, <laughs> we wrote Secret Santa in 20 days. It's one of the fastest wow. scripts I've ever pumped out. And I have to tell you, it happened because I so knew what I wanted to say. I so knew what the point of the story was. And so mm -hmm. 20 days to write it. On November 22nd of 2015, we did the first table read of the movie. We did the second table read a week later, which had some rewrites to it. By January 4th, 5th, excuse me, January 5th, 2016, we were shooting. We were wrapped January 19th. Amazing. Fucking hell. <laughs> okay. The entire film, from the moment we started writing to the time we finished shooting, was two and a half months. That's it. It takes me like six months to put put together a short. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hell. I had I had five crew members. That's it. Whoa, five human beings right, okay. to crew and a cast of twenty five. Now there were thirteen main cast that were on set the entire movie. Um. So, mm -hmm. but and we shot in eleven nights in one day. So that's okay. You know that's wow. the that's the soup to nuts of of, of of what we were doing. Why I did it was when I was a kid. My parents, well, before I was a kid, before I was even here, my parents got married on Christmas Eve. So did mine. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> well, here's the thing. <laughs> cool. Here's, here's the thing that's kind of nuts about it. My parents are both Jews. Mine are not. So, okay. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. My mother loved the season so much, thought it was so beautiful that she was like, she wanted to get married at that time. So now the my two Jewish parents now would have these holidays that looked like Macy's threw up. I mean, it was like, <laughs> we had the biggest Christmas tree. My mother made handmade ornaments and would sell them. I mean, it was like insane. And again, I'm lighting the, the Hanukkah candles every night as well. I mean, it was, it was berserk. But here's the thing, my parents would have a Christmas Eve party that was an anniversary party every year. But for us, it was Christmas Eve and it was Santa and presents and all that stuff. Well, when I'm, so by the way, the most beautiful time of the year, couldn't be more extraordinary. I love Christmas. When I'm six years old, my parents split up. Right, right. But guys, they keep having the party. So now uh, okay. it's, a, it's a fuck you, I'm divorcing you, bitch, party. <laughs> and there are factions of the family and friends who are on either side. And I'm telling you, we would have like games of charades that almost got into fistfights. Amazing. And um, this is all what I'm, I'm starting kid. to see how this came together. Yes. So here's the thing. What I started to realize was not just for me, which was an extreme example, but for everybody, everybody's got that relative they fucking hate that like you just wish you could pull the, the knife out of the turkey and just start stabbing them. There's just that <laughs> everybody has that. 
And by the way, just so you know, I, uh, when I was in at NYU, when I was in college, um, I was a criminology minor, um, right. okay. because I knew the kind of movies I wanted to make. So I wanted to know all of this stuff. Um, one of the most oft used, uh, weapons in the United States is the carving knife from the Thanksgiving turkey or the Christmas ham. That's a true story. <laughs> right. Um, oh so, so that concept, I was like, okay, what if these people that you, that you're forced to say, I love you to that you're for, cause I don't, my, my thing about family is I don't believe who you're born to is your family. I think that's who you're born to. And sometimes you get dealt a crappy hand. I think family is who right. you build yeah. around you, is your friends, is the community you create around you. That becomes your family as you get older. So for me, what is it about this force group? And what if you got a chance to say anything you wanted to say to them and then <laughs> got to do whatever you wanted to do to them? I mean, it is an incredibly biting film, I think. I, I, yes. I love it as well. I know you, you swept, uh, swept you. in there, thank Mitch, you. but you were really speaking for us both, I think. Yeah, it's, I think it's great. And like I say, <laughs> and if anybody's curious about it, in the UK, it's now, it's on Amazon Prime and just go get it watched. Absolutely, um, it's, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Awesome. Um, Adam, Jason Goes to Hell. Yes, um, yes, please. So, obviously, um, uh, a lot of our listeners will know you best from that, and you've been kind enough to share some stories about that with us tonight. A couple of cool things have happened, kind of, obviously, recently. You, via Facebook, introduced me to the Jason Goes to Hell fan group on there, which is an unbelievably thriving community. But also, there's a crowdfunder that I think is worth talking about right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, we're really excited about it. It, it, it. I was brought the idea of doing a documentary about Jason Goes to Hell because uh, I was, when I got hired to write and direct the movie, I was the youngest writer-director ever to be hired by a major studio in Hollywood history. And that came, that, that, that gift <laughs> really is a little bit of a monkey's paw. But here's the thing. <laughs> I, when they brought this project to me, it was these really, you know, enthusiastic guys who were all excited about it, but really didn't know what they wanted to make. They just wanted to make a documentary about the movie. And I was like, well, guys, listen, I have no interest in being involved with something that's a fluff piece because the movie was not fluffy. It continues to not be fluffy. The most fluffy part of that movie was the actual production of the film because it went so smoothly, I finished on time, under budget, and I had this incredible cast. I, like, it was really kind of a love fest, minus a couple of, you know, a couple of characters. And <laughs> since then, there have been these waves that I've had to ride of people either loving the movie or freaking hating the movie. And mm -hmm. the worst part of it is that there's this, you know, this horrible iceberg who started out really as like a creative father to me, but over the years, has just become really a fucking prick. Forgive my language, but that's what he is. Is Sean Cunningham, who, again, let's remember, he's in his early 50s. I'm 22. Uh -huh. Yeah. And he tells people that he did not tell me to get the hockey mask out of the movie, that I told him to get the hockey mask out. And I go, wait a second. Hang on. So a 22-year-old kid told the 53-year-old Sean S. Cunningham what he was going to do with the Friday 13th franchise. <laughs> like, I, and, 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 I've, and I've put this out to show, I've put this out on, on social media many times. Listen, I'll take either one of these scenarios. Either I am the most powerful young man to ever exist in the history of time, <laughs> or, or, and, and by the way, that makes Sean Cunningham a, a full eunuch, or I was a, a, a really lucky kid who fell into this incredible opportunity and was doing exactly what he was told. And that makes Sean Cunningham a fucking liar. So I'll take either scenario. I'm good. Either way, I look good. And either way, he looks like a prick. 
And if you know Sean Cunningham, you know the latter is true. Um, so for me, I said, you know, I said to these guys, I said, look, because they said, we don't see a movie happening if you're not involved. And I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that because the previous documentaries that have been made about the Friday 13th franchise, I don't know if you guys know this, but you know, there was the first one, his name is Jason. His name was Jason. And yeah. I was actually <laughs> properly interviewed for that film. I don't like the look. First off, it looks like someone ate poor Adam Marcus. I'm 60 <laughs> pounds heavier than I am now and I, because it was, oh my God, it was just awful. Um, I'm like the Orson Welles of horror. So, so there's that. But also they cut me in a way that took sound bites that fulfilled their vision of what my movie was. So I got it. That's cool. Sure. That, right. Look, yeah, we sure. subject ourselves to it. That's fine. Here's the thing. If you look at Crystal Lake Memories, they never interviewed me for the movie. They took the footage from His Name Was Jason. Oh, it's recycled. Okay. There's nothing about that movie that's original. They were just recycling. And that pissed me. I'm like, wait a second. By the way, for Crystal Lake Memories, I gave them tons of archival material. Because mm -hmm. I have all of Susan Cunningham's archives. She gave them all to me. So Sean's ex-wife gave me everything. So I gave these guys all this <laughs> material to make their movie with they never interviewed so the other part of it is crystal lake memories you know the author peter brackey who wrote the book which is an incredible book yeah. even in the uh, book yeah. even yeah. in the book there's a little bit of like a, you know sean cunningham basically blaming me for everything you know blame the 22 year old kid so here's the thing years later i'm talking with peter brackey he had reached out to me for there there was they're trying to put together this special edition deluxe blu-ray and i can't tell you all the ins and outs of that because it's going to happen but he reached out to me to talk about it to do a new commentary track and to do a little a little doc a little like you know 10 minute you know behind the scenes documentary on there mm -hmm. and so i i said listen peter i said i'll do it but i gotta tell you you kind of fucked me on the book man like i love the book i got it on my coffee table it's something i'm very proud to be a part of but there's some stuff mm -hmm. in there and he says adam i totally know that i did he said i didn't know it then he said, but Sean Cunningham was the reason the book was getting made. It's how I got the licensing. It's how everything worked. And I really took Sean's, you know, I took his word on stuff. He said, but I've done my own research over time. And yeah, I know. Well, by the way, Peter really put his money where his mouth is because I asked Peter to do all the interviews and all the archival historical work for the book, for the, for the movie, for the, for the documentary. And he's doing it. so. Amazing. Superb. So here's the thing. I said to these guys who had brought me the project, I said, look, I said, um, the only way I'm going to get involved is my production company is, is going to, is going to, you know, help make the movie. I said, and the reason why I'm saying that, I said, I'm not directing the movie. I'm not, I'm not a creative behind the film. I'm in the film. I said, however, sure. I need to know that this movie is going to be about conflict and it's going to be about warts and all. And I said, here's the movie we need to make. The movie is who in the world would give the keys to the biggest <laughs> horror franchise of all time to a 22-year-old film school idiot who would do that. <laughs> I'm like, that's your movie. I said, and by the way, I said, I know who I am. I know who I was back then. I know how I got the job. Like, I know it. I, I, I know who I am. So I understand that part of the story. But I'm telling you, that's where the story is. The story is how the hell did that happen? And the answer is actually going to freak people out. And it's not, it's not what they're expecting. And so there, there is something to be said for that part of the story. And then for the fan reaction, the other part of this, here's what's crazy about this movie. The younger the audience member is, the more they love Jason Goes to Hell. And the younger the audience member is, the more Jason Goes to Hell is their favorite movie of the franchise. Okay. And it's because if you weren't born 
and watched all of those movies in order, you didn't become the fan of the wrestling mask that is that hockey mask. Yeah. If you see Jason Goes to Hell out of context with the other films, you're like, okay, this is kind of badass and nuts. And again, I, I, I'm building a horror universe in the movie that no one had done before then. There was no Marvel universe, none of that stuff. And literally, sure, I'm weaving yeah. together Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, The Evil Dead. I'm, I'm bringing all of these str strings together because I wanted to... I was like, why can't all these things live in the same universe? Isn't that more interesting? I mean, when mm -hmm. I was a kid and the Harlem Globetrotters would be on an episode of Scooby-Doo, that was the coolest thing in the world. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> They're in the same place when Batman showed up? Come on. That's amazing. <laughs> It's so, interesting actually you say that because Paddy, Paddy Murphy, who was on as our guest uh -huh. um, when we did the episode on Jason Goes uh -huh. to Hell, he said it was actually the first in the franchise he saw, so he came into it without any context whatsoever. <laughs> so he just assumed that Jason was like hopping from body to body like, <laughs> constantly. Uh, he just assumed that that was like one of his things. Uh, so he, I mean... It, um, he, also was, he also was of the uh, understanding that the confrontation between Jason and Creighton Duke was like multiple films in the making. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That is so good. Well, here's the thing, guys. I wanted Tommy Jarvis. Um, the, the character John LeMay was supposed to play was right. Tommy Jarvis. I, I didn't own him. Paramount never sold them the rights to Tommy. They just got sure, Friday the yeah. 13th and Jason. That's it. That, or, sorry, mm -hmm. they didn't even get Friday the 13th. They couldn't Friday, use no, that. They just, got, they could just, they just got the word Friday. That's it. Jason. They got Jason. Oh, Jason. Jason, of course. Yeah. That's what they got. So anything that was in the first screenplay or even hinted at in the first screenplay, that they had ownership of, Camp Crystal Lake, all the rest. So again, I'm literally handed this prize that has all of these insane conditions on it, including the fact that the very first words out of Sean Cunningham's mouth is, you get the fucking hockey mask out of the movie, I'll let you write and direct it. Quote, unquote. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like... So again, the fun of this movie is, look, it's not just for people who love the movie. It's for people who can't stand the freaking movie. And sure. by the way, we even have a perk in the Indiegogo campaign because like a lot of the perks come with a thank you on, you know, on screen, an on screen thank you to somebody sure. who contributed. Well, we created a perk. I just, I, I just literally put the perk out a couple days ago and it's a fuck you. So <laughs> at the end of the movie, there'll be the thank yous and then there will be the fuck yous. And it's anybody who wants to tell me to go fuck myself. 10 bucks. Amazing. And you, Amazing. you get that credit. So I really I, like I, the fact that you're charging people to do that. <laughs> hell yeah. Well, by the way, think about it. Okay, all the people who hate my movie, right? All of them. They right. all own a copy of it on VHS. They own the DVD. They own usually a DVD two-pack with that and, and Jason X. And by the way, they hate Jason X more than mine, which is always hilarious. And then I certainly, I certainly do. Yeah, same. there you go. And then they've got the Blu-ray in the large package Blu-ray box set. So I go, okay. So <laughs> and 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 that's not even counting those who saw it in the theater. So ostensibly, the people who hate my movie have spent seventy to hundred bucks on my movie. <laughs> yep, yep. And have seen it so many times, like countless times. And yeah, I'm going like, amazing. okay, well, great. Then put up or shut up about your hatred, like bring it so for me it's i'm look i am i am all about uh, i love everybody's opinion the people who hate it and are creative about their hatred 
always kills me. I could, you know, I could do without the death threats. I could do without the, I hope you get <laughs> ass cancer. Um, you know, I could do with some, sure, without some of that stuff. But I got to tell you, man, it's like, here's the thing. You know, I, I, I always tell this story because it, it, it illuminates kind of the, the horror in general, horror fans in general, and this franchise's importance. On the day that Jason Goes to Hell came out, I could not see the movie again. I, I was like, I had seen the movie like 12 times that week. And I was like, I cannot look at this movie again. So I bought a, I bought a ticket for my movie. And then I walked into another film at the same Cineplex that I was much more excited about seeing that night, which was Searching <laughs> for Bobby Fischer, right? So Searching for Bobby right. Fischer was playing. Steve Zalian, who, you know, Academy Award winning screenwriter, a beautifully made movie. You've got, you know, Joan Allen, at Academy Award winning Joan Allen. You've got Joe Montana. You've got Sir Ben Kingsley. I mean, it's like, it's an incredible movie. I love that film. To this day, I love that film. If I ask people, and by the way, open the same night as Jason Goes to Hell. If I ask people, hey, have, have you ever seen Surgeon Rod Fisher? They look at me with a blank stare. Is that, what is that? Is that a TV? Is that on Netflix? People don't know what yeah. the hell it is. But I say, have you seen Jason Goes to Hell? Everyone has seen Jason. It's crazy. <laughs> and the fact that people are still talking about it to this day and getting into real arguments about the movie, I go, look, this is the power of what horror fans can do. They are rabid, both good and bad. And they their their passion about this is so extraordinary. So look, you know, is it a double-edged sword to <laughs> to make that movie the beginning of my career? Fuck yeah, it is. But is, mm -hmm. it, is it also something that I respect and that I still am very proud of? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, look, I look at something Good. like Secret Santa and I go, well, no, that's the filmmaker that I've become. Like, that's, that's my movie. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I look at Jason Goes to Hell and I go, you know what? Because when I shot the movie, I was 23. And I'm like, for a 23-year-old making that movie? Damn. Like, that's a good <laughs> like, movie. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, man. So, absolutely. So again, it, the, the documentary will cover it all and it'll cover the hatred and the love and the mm -hmm. fandom and all, it's all in there. It's, it, guys, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm really excited about the movie. It's a cool story. That's the best part of it. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll post up links all over kind of all our social it. media and stuff. So, because I get the impression our listeners are really gonna want to get behind Absolutely. this too. I love, well, there's only uh, there's only twelve days left, so there's twelve days left, and then campaign's oh. over, and I'm gonna go shoot this thing. So, yes, I hope your okay. listeners jump in because it's. It, by the way, just from a sales standpoint, the Indiegogo, the, the 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 perks that we have on Indiegogo are so insane. The number of like amazing artists that have come out. Um, some of the best mask make makers in the world, some of the best pin makers in the world. And I'm, I'm, there's no hyperbole. I'm saying in the world have come in to mm -hmm. donate stuff, to sell. Bill Hunt, uh, one of the original uh, creature designers from the movie, painted two oil canvases that are so breathtaking. I, it's extraordinary. This is the kind of, of backup I've had from the artistic community to, you know, to, to put stuff out there. So people aren't just getting, they're not just donating, but they're actually getting really cool shit in return. So that's yeah. fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, by the time this yeah. by the time this airs, there'll be about a week to go. So we will we'll push that very hard. Awesome. Love it. And this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, talking cruising with you has been amazing, but uh, talking about your own work as well. This has been so much fun. Thank I have you. to say, and on, on a personal level, I, I, Friday the 13th is probably one of my favorite franchises. Sure. I have Jason Tattoos. Yeah. And, um, yeah, this this has been an absolute delight for me. Awesome. <laughs> and I don't mind telling you. Well, I, it's been um, a delight for me as well, guys. It really has. Adam, just before you go, where can people get you on social media? Uh, they can get me, um, uh, look, Facebook. I'm all over Facebook. So Adam Marcus on Facebook, but also Hearts of Darkness, The Making of the Final Friday. That is uh, on 
Facebook as well. So is Secret Santa is on Facebook. And of course, uh, Jason Goes to Hell, the final fan page, also on Facebook. But when it comes to Twitter, Adam Mar- at Adam Marcus 13, at Hearts of Darkness 13. Sorry, mm-hmm. Hearts of Dark. Thir- I think it's Hearts of Dark 13. I think they, we had to shorten it. Okay. Okay. Um, we are also uh, on Twitter at Skeleton Crew Pro. Okay. And then on Instagram at Skeleton Crew Pro and Hearts of Darkness okay. 13. That's us. Amazing. Adam, thank you so much for doing this. This has been so thank much Thank you, fun. man. This has been amazing. This was a fantastic discussion. Loved it. Well, that was all I dreamed and more. Honestly, that, that was fucking amazing. It really was. What, um, a, what, what a fucking nice guy. And by the way, to hear some of those stories, some of the stuff I'd kind of had a rough idea about before. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's fucking great. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> a huge thank you to Secret Santa and Jason Goes to Hell director wow. Adam Marcus yeah. for joining us this week and talking amongst those things, cruising. Yeah, top quality content, Mitch. That's what we're all about. You know what? I'm not one to blow my own horn, man. I'm going to blow the top quality content horn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a bit in that film that we never touched on about a guy who apparently gave twelve blowjobs in an hour. Yeah, that's uh, one every five minutes. He was he was good at blowing horns. <laughs> There's some dog quality content. Yeah, I wonder if he took them all to completion because <laughs> that's also skills, who mad skills. And I suppose that's just about all we've got time for <laughs> on that bombshell. On that bombshell. However, of course, we are never away far long. We will be back on Monday with another mini-sode for your delectation. We'll have all the usual stuff on there. We'll be marking my progress and hurtling towards the conclusion of the Shockwaves 100 we'll be talking about what else we've been watching we'll be uh, taking a look at some of your feedback and of course we're letting you know everything you need to know for this week's episode which is going to be another fun one and also playing another round of course of Mitch's Pitches Mitch's Pitches hooray if you want to get in touch with us in the meantime we'd love to hear from you and you can do that in loads of different ways Facebook and Instagram we're Strong Language Violent Scenes you can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC and you can also email Scenes at gmail.com yep and if you want to Find all that information and more. You can find it on our website, strongviolentpod.com. Lots of stuff on there. Yeah, you can also find uh, information about our live shows as and when we have it. And we'll have some of that. And we will have some of that because plans are in motion. Wheels are a-turning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll also find links to our Tee Public page where we have some silly little t-shirt designs yep. for you. Some of them have Mitchie's face on them. Sure do. Pretty nice. And also you can find a list. It's not a full list, but it's a pretty big list of places where you can listen to us. And we like Podbean. Personally. We do like Podbean. They're our home, our hosts, and they've always been brilliant. And we're closing in on, what, what fucking hell, it must be about 18 months by now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's more than that. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. That concludes episode 79A. <laughs> Alright, fuck up. <laughs> we are back Monday with another mini-sode. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it's better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.